electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, the trucking industry smoking mad over a big victory for California's green agenda. Is Russia's economy coming undone? How the arrest of a Wall Street Journal reporter by Putin's regime could be a big warning sign. President Biden dishing out a little uh, fuzzy math on inflation. Fox News suffers a major blow in its $1.6 billion legal battle over the election. And the bargain basement prices to hit this year's final four, at least the men's tournament, that is. It is your RBI. That and much more ahead. Belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. We've got a big hour ahead. We are live and with all those headlines and more. But first up, we're going to count your money. And it is a happy Friday for investors. The big indexes all rising today and most of them up nicely on the week. And with these gains, look at that, more than a percent across the board, the Nasdaq 100 now up 20 percent this year. Ironically, the gains are likely on expectation that the economy will weaken. So maybe the Fed then stops raising rates or maybe even begins to cut interest rates down the road. If that sounds bonkers, welcome to Wall Street, everybody. A big part of the money story were the banks mercifully ending one of their worst months ever with a little bit of pinch of sugar. Most of the banks rose today as well. So a little Friday good news on at least those stocks, perhaps. Except for one, that's not on that wall, and that is Charles Schwab. The brokerage and bank was down again today. Not a lot, just a couple of cents. But with that move, Schwab's shares dropped nearly 33% this month, making it the worst month for that stock since 1987. Yes, that 1987 that featured the Black Monday crash. But is that move in Schwab justified? Remember, Schwab's CEO bought a bunch of the stock just a couple of weeks ago, 50,000 shares, in fact. That's a pretty big sign of confidence and really putting your money where your mouth is, or at least his. And Schwab, not exactly some mid-sized regional bank where people just kind of walk down and take their money out. Schwab has $17 trillion in assets or whatever it is. And now many, including the New York Times moments ago, asking a Kind of a very simple, but at times complicated question. What exactly is going on here? If you know more about the brokerage industry than Tom Sosnoff, CEO of Tasty Trade and founder of Think or Swim, which was then sold to TD Ameritrade. Some call him the godfather of options, but like in a nice way. And the godfather of fast money, Guy Adami, making his first last call appearance. Guy, and we appreciate it, Tom. Good to see you as well. Guy Adami, first to you, my man. I know it's Friday night. You probably had dinner with the wife. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Does Schwab, I hate to use the term deserve, because what did they say? Deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. But does the Schwab shares merit this kind of treatment? 
first of all, congratulations on the show. You've put together an all-star cast in terms of who you have behind the scenes. You in that seat. I'm proud of you. And being on with Tom Sosnoff is an honor. Are they worthy of it? Do they deserve it? Well, price, I say all the time, is truth. And it's interesting. You know, if you go to an aquarium, which I love to do on my off days, and you watch like the predators swim around each other, they're always swimming around with one eye looking at the other guy and gal until something happens. And that's true on Wall Street. All those predators swimming around, they're always waiting for some sign of weakness. And we're seeing it now in the form of Charles Schwab. Morgan Stanley downgraded Charles Schwab this week. They put in market perform, I believe, or an underperform on the stock. They lowered their price target from 98 to 68. They took their earnings estimates down 30% for this year and next year. And trust when I say they didn't do that half-heartedly. So there's clearly now blood in the water. What I find interesting, though, and I think Tom can speak to this, despite the fact that they underperformed the stock and took their earnings numbers down, they still have a $68 price target on the stock, Brian, which is still 30% higher than it is now. But I will tell you, people are feeling that right now. And the way the stock performed today on a tremendous tape, end of quarter, is no bueno. And then that guy, by the way, thank you for the kind words. The crew, everybody here is fantastic. Really appreciate it, Tom. I think Guy nailed it, too. Not just about our team, of course, but about Schwab, which is, you know, this is, and the reason we're leading with it, Tom, is that this is not... No offense to mid-sized regional banks, some mid-sized regional bank. This is one of the most important financial institutions, arguably, in this country. By the way, it's where my family has, has our money, so I find no joy in talking about this as, as well, Tom. Uh, how are you worried about Schwab? Well, you got to realize, Brian, uh, I'm a competitor. So when I, when I think about Schwab, um, uh, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I'm a little bit worried because where there's smoke and I'm also an efficient market kind of, you know, efficient market guy who thinks that when a stock's trading at a certain price, it's probably there for a reason. But um, there's probably something going on at Schwab that 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 we don't know about. Maybe they and, and they really haven't spoken about it. But my guess is they got a little bit inverted or backwards on on laddering out their you know cash deposits because Schwab's a little bit different than the rest of the online brokers out there. I mean, their, their banking facility and the relationship they have with their own bank, it probably is a lot different than the rest of you know the brokers out there. Mostly every broker, our own firm included, you know, we're we're all in overnight paper. Essentially, nobody ladders out anything because there's no edge to us to do it, or there's no reason for us to do it. For Schwab, um, I think their business model is a little bit different. And then there's the other, you know, variable which nobody knows about, which is how big is their you know commercial loan. Um, portfolio and how much, how many mortgages they have out there, that kind of stuff that none of the other brokerage firms have either. So I think that those are the kind of the two open variables that that we don't know about. I mean, as far as their technology goes, I mean, we built it, so I'm pretty sure it's pretty damn good. Yeah. You know, so so I don't think that's the issue. And in and in fairness, brokerage firms, most brokerage firms on the street, I think March was probably the best month in history. Yeah. Because of a combination of trading volumes and interest rates. So I think, you know, it doesn't, Schwab doesn't make any sense. Where they're trading, there's a there's something, there's something there's, going on and we just don't know what it is. Yeah, the Times guy noting they've got uh, 367 billion in deposits, 28 billion, I think, in paper mm -hmm. losses. That's key, paper losses in the bond portfolio, kind of maybe that same duration mismatch that Silicon Valley Bank had. 
But you know what? Let's forget about Schwab for it. You ever see that internet meme that goes around of like that, that little girl who's smiling awkwardly as there's a house on fire behind her? It's a real sure. picture, right? I kind of feel like that girl should be replaced by Jerome Powell. And the fire is like, how bad has the Fed contributed to what is going on in the banking sector? Um, well, it's only an hour long show. I'd like right? to hear I'm your sorry, view on Tom. it as well. No, Guy, go, go ahead. Guy first. No, I, I, I'm sorry, Tom. I apologize. No, no, no it's worries. interesting. I think most of what you're seeing, and this is just my opinion. I want to be clear. I'm sure other people share different opinions, but you could put FTX at the feet of the Federal Reserve. You could put this Silicon Valley Bank at the feet of the Federal Reserve. Now you'll say, what are you talking about, Guy? Well, what I'm saying is when interest rates are zero for 15 years, people get very lazy. When people get lazy, they can get complacent and they're not aware of some of the perils that are out there. And then when interest rates move 475 basis points in the course of nine months to the upside, nobody was prepared for that because, quite frankly, they never had to be. Regardless of whether the Fed telegraphed it or not, that's fine. They did their job in terms of talking to the world. The world chose not to listen. And you're seeing it manifest in some of these bank blowups. So, yeah, it's absolutely at the Federal Reserve. Don't even get you see. It's like Damone. I woke up in such a good mood and it's Friday and now I'm in a bad one. Sorry, Brian. Back you're welcome, to you. guy. You're welcome. Tom, your thoughts. Well, I, one of my favorite things is, is debating different topics with Guy because it's so much fun. We've had a ton of fun over the years doing that. I actually think the Fed missed their opportunity, but it was a couple of years ago, and they didn't act proactively. But when it comes to their current role, which is basically to tie to tie short-term interest rates into what the market's already, already projecting and already telling you, the Fed has one obligation, like in the case of, of Silicon Valley Bank and, and all the other problems that they're facing when banks are fragile, and that's to stabilize the integrity of the banking system and to stabilize market structure. And I think they did a really good job of that. If the Fed made a mistake, it's because they didn't act over, just like I said, over a 10-year period and let things get out of hand to the downside. But the fact that interest rates moved 500 basis points and the yield curve got inverted and it squeezed all these firms that laddered stuff out, I'm sorry, but that's on these firms. It's a little bit different on the banking side because the banking side had no right to take hedge fund risk. Yeah. But on the brokerage side, um, you know, most of the firms, they take a little bit more risk with respect to laddering out. But, you know, I mean, if Schwab got caught, they got caught. I mean, it's just a bad trade. You wonder, Guy Dami, and I, this little fast money last call version, is Schwab now a buy? I love it. Is it a, do we buy the stock or, or just wait this out? I, I well, think, I think Schwab, personally, guy. I think you. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. I apologize, Tom. I keep jumping on you. I apologize. No, what I'll say is on a day where the market's up significantly, uh, banks bounce. Schwab closed lower on the day. Yeah, it's bounced from that $45 low, but it does not trade particularly well. So why be a hero? I'm sure that's a great title for a movie, but I don't think there's any reason to be. And that Morgan Stanley piece quickly, they talked about potentially $22 billion, with a B dollars of losses at Charles Schwab. That's what they do in a year in revenue. So I say you got to sort of you got to wait this one out for a while, Brian. Yeah, Tom, your take on Schwab and Guy Adami's apparent affection for aquariums. Um, we are slightly long Delta. That means we're slightly theoretically long Schwab here on our own positions. But I do not like Schwab for passive investors here. I just don't. I think I agree with Guy that that Schwab from a passive outlook, I don't like it at all. From a trader standpoint, Schwab's caring about the highest volatility on the street. So it's the most interesting play as a strategic underlying for like option traders and for people that like to speculate. Like if you want pot mm -hmm. odds, 
Schwab is the best play in the, in the space. It has the best pot odds because it has the highest volatility. But if you're looking for passive investment, I, I really don't like it. If you're looking as a, as a trader, the markets in there aren't great, but it has the richest volatility. And so it's the most interesting play of all the financial service stocks. Tom Sosnoff, Guy Adami, gentlemen, both appreciate you staying late on a Friday night. Guy, I'll see you this weekend at the Camden Aquarium, apparently. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank I, you. I'm there. Let's go. I'll, I'll, I'll buy. See you By later, the way, Brian. the two hippos, they're tremendous there if you haven't been. All right. Breaking developments right now, and this is a big one. There are more potential subpoenas of some big money names over sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. CBC's Eamon Javers with those details. Eamon. Brian, the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands is issuing subpoenas to four of the richest and most powerful men in the country as it seeks new information about disgraced sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, a source familiar with the situation told me today. The news of the subpoenas was first reported by the Wall Street Journal late this afternoon. The four men are Google co-founder Sergey Brin, Hyatt Hotels executive chairman Thomas Pritzker, real estate billionaire Mortimer Zuckerman, and former Hollywood agent Michael Ovitz. Now, it's not entirely clear what information is being sought by these subpoenas. The journal reports the subpoenas are looking for documents and communications related to the bank and to Jeffrey Epstein himself. One allegation the Virgin Islands have made in court filings is that J.P. Morgan continued its banking relationship with Epstein for years after the bank knew of his sexual offenses because Epstein was able to refer prominent and wealthy people as clients for the bank. Now, CNBC reached out to representatives of all four men, but none of them have issued a comment to us tonight. The Virgin Islands lawsuit alleges that J.P. Morgan facilitated Epstein's sexual crimes. The bank denies that. J.P. Morgan sought to dismiss the suit, but a judge allowed it to proceed late this month. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is now expected to be deposed under oath in the case in the coming weeks. The bank has said he doesn't have any recollection of reviewing the Epstein accounts at the bank. J.P. Morgan also declined to comment this afternoon. Brian, back over to you. Well, and let's not forget that while Epstein may be dead, <clears throat> his assistant, Ghislaine Maxwell, who many people have implicated in some of this, at least as far as the personal aspect of it went, is still very much alive. And I want to be clear, Eamon, we got to be careful, right? Because it's, we think of Epstein with all these sort of salacious stories. Is it possible that some of these subpoenas are simply about financial matters? It, it's likely that they're simply about financial matters at this point. Uh, we don't know uh, anything else about the relationships between any of these people uh, and Jeffrey Epstein. But if you put up that wall graphic that we just showed, I mean, uh, these are some powerful and prominent and wealthy individuals uh, who are uh, now being linked in this court process to Jeffrey Epstein's name. That's not a pleasant position for any of these men to be in tonight, uh, but that's where they are. What the subpoenas are suggesting is that there is some reason for the U.S. Virgin Islands team to believe that those men had some information about Jeffrey Epstein's relationship with the bank. We also know separately that there is a claim by the U.S. Virgin Islands here that J.P. Morgan kept Epstein on board because he was recommending powerful, wealthy people as clients to the bank. So you can maybe connect those two. We'll have to wait and see what all those people say when they do give us statements. Uh, but the question is, is there some kind of financial relationship here between those folks, the bank, and Jeffrey Epstein? We don't know that at yeah, this and hour. That's uh, and then the other question that, that will be, yeah, and, and the other question that will be asked here is if 
he was rep representing these people as clients to the bank. Uh, what was the relationship between Jeffrey Epstein uh, and any of these individuals? And we just don't know that at this hour. And that's still one of the biggest questions. How did Epstein get all the money? And by the way, throw that throw that wall back up there. And again, this could this is all could end up being nothing. And it's a critical Thomas Pritzker is the cousin of Jay Pritzker, who is the governor of Illinois. So, so sort of even indirectly now, we've gone from just billionaires to national sure. politics. That is the cousin of the governor of the, Illinois. The wealth you see represented in that group, the political connections, the power, the influence, it's just absolutely enormous. Eamon Javers. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Straight ahead, now California's trucking industry may now be at risk of being run over by the state's green agenda, plus some of the fuzzy math coming out of the White House on inflation. We're going to have a little fun with math. Have a little fun. Why not? It's Friday. We're back right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Not a rather surprising story. The Biden administration putting forward new rules to limit federal tax cuts on electric cars. CBC's Phil LeBeau joining us now to break it all down. Phil, I mean, we've been told we want to encourage this. Why does it appear to be going in the opposite right. direction? Well, you could flip that around and say that they're making the rules clear for bringing the supply chain to the U.S., not limiting the EV tax credits. But we've known that was the agenda for some time from the Biden administration. Comes down to this, Brian. The federal tax credit has not changed for electric vehicles. Still $7,500, but it's now divided in two, depending on where the critical minerals as well as the battery components come from. So here's, without getting too wonky here, for the critical minerals, they have to be sourced or processed in North America or free trade countries. 40% of the battery's value of those critical minerals starting April 18th, have to come from the U.S., North America, free trade countries, and that rises up to 80% by 2027. Similar to what we're seeing when it comes to battery components. And this is important because almost all battery components right now, they come from China. And so what they're saying is 50% of the value of those starting April 18th need to come from North America, free trade countries, and then that percentage rises up to 100% by 2029. 
Let me give you a refresher here in terms of who leads when it comes to electric vehicle sales in North America, in the U.S., I should say. No surprise, it is Tesla. They are the bluest of the blue, the biggest of the blue there in this pie chart. Uh, These rules take effect on April 18th. And remember, it's only for EVs that are built here in North America. And there are a couple other uh, stipulations within the EV tax credit. When you take a look at shares of Tesla, remember, they report their Q1 deliveries over the weekend. It builds most of the vehicles that it sells in the United States are built in the United States. So they will get some type of a tax credit, most likely, but not all of them will. The standard range Model 3 has battery packs that come with uh, battery cells from China. Will that not get the full credit? We'll have to find out on April 18th. And then there is GM and Ford. Now, both companies say they are studying what the rules are, and they're going to see how much it applies to their vehicles. In the case of Ford, they're pretty optimistic that a number of their vehicles Mm -hmm. will have at least some of the tax incentive. GM says the Blazer when it comes out, the Equinox when it comes out, the electric versions, as well as the Lyric, they believe it'll qualify. Those models will qualify for the full 7,500. And then finally, take a look at what I call the EV startups here in the U.S., Fisker, Rivian, Lucid. Most of these models do not qualify, but for a variety of reasons. Fiskers are going to be built in Europe, at least the first models, and then shipped over here. They're ineligible. Rivians and Lucid, it comes down to the price of the vehicle. Lucid clearly is above uh, the starting price or the top price for the EV incentive. So April 18th is when we will get the final rules, Brian. And it'll be interesting to see. Right now, 21 vehicles qualify for the, the full incentive. How much that comes down once all the companies have a chance to look at the rules. And I know that if Philip Bow doesn't know everything, because you do know everything, that the poor car salesperson probably would really struggle if a customer came in outside of a outside of a few cars. <laughs> you know, we'll see. So, so just so you know, Brian, the way it works, on the 15th of every month, the Treasury Department will put out, here are the models that qualify, and this is the incentive. So you'll know. If you're interested in the market, you can go to this website, and it'll say... Model 3, Model Y, Lyric, whatever it might be, Mustang Mach-E, you'll be able to find out. Good to know. We learned something. And knowing is half the battle. Phil LeBeau, thank you. All right, let's stay on the roads. And with EVs last year, remember, California says it will ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. Well, now the state wants to whack most diesel trucks and buses. Today, the Biden administration granted California the ability to force truck sales to become largely electric by the same year, in 12 years. It allows California a waiver to go beyond federal rules and under the waiver. Within 12 years, 55% of delivery vans and small trucks must be electric, 75% of buses and bigger trucks must be electric, and 40% of tractor trailers and other big rigs sold in the state would have to be all electric. Now, right now, electric trucks are far more expensive than traditional engines, though the IRA would allow some tax credits on these vehicles as well. Governor Gavin Newsom applauding the decision in a statement he wrote in part, quote, we're leading the charge against dirty trucks and buses, the most polluting vehicles off our streets, and other states and countries are lining up to follow our lead. Now, to be fair, Europe just reversed its EV car sales mandate by 2035 a few days ago. And opponents to what California is trying to do say that if one state can do that, it could alter the market for trucks nationwide when there simply may not be enough electric vehicle infrastructure to manage any of this. For reactions, bring in Louis Pugh. He is the EVP owner-operator of Independent Drivers Association, which operates 
one of the 240,000 individual heavy-duty trucks and a former truck driver himself. Louis, thanks for coming on. Uh, listen, here's the thing. Assuming we could build all these electric trucks and buses <laughs> by, in 12 years, that's a big assumption. The EV infrastructure is, is nowhere right now for trucks, is it? No, it's not. And I thank you for having me, but you are correct. And not only is it not there, if we even, assuming, we, like you said, we do build these trucks, the people I represent, the small business truckers, which make up the mass majority of all trucking companies out there, and I'm talking the mom and pop, one truck, two truck guys like myself, they couldn't afford them anyway, nor would probably be able to buy them. And they, when you say the infrastructure is not there, that's a very good point. Myself, I owned a truck for 20, almost 25 years. I parked my truck at my house at night when I was home or on the weekends when I was home. I can't or couldn't afford to put one of these charging stations in my home to charge my truck when I'm there. When I had a, an internal combustion engine diesel truck, I'd stop fueled up before I went home. You're, you're really... Politicians are completely out of touch with how the trucking industry works, how the supply chain works, and the unintended consequences this is going to have. You know, I, uh, I have a good friend who's a former on-the-road trucker himself, now a truck broker for, for Landstar, and I, I know a little about him and his business, and I got to watch him at work, actually, in, in northern Michigan and Wisconsin. And one thing I learned is, A, time literally is money for truck drivers. Literally, time is money for truckers. And number two... Already there's a problem sometimes getting truck drivers to go to California because of so many different rules, so many different regulations, right? It's geographically isolated if you're kind of in the middle of the country on the East Coast. What do you think California is, is trying to do here? I don't know what they're trying to do. I've been on a lot of these listening sessions with the CARB. I have brought these points up. Again, I have real-world knowledge. Funny that you have a friend that worked for Landstar. I was leased to Landstar with my own tractor trailer for almost 14 years myself. I didn't go to California. I went to California early in my career, and I quit going because of rules like this. California put rules in in 07, 08 with CARB that drove a lot of truckers out. They have their own CARB enforcement out there. Lots of guys, lots of truckers, most of the folks I know, I'm from the Midwest originally, they don't want to go to California because of all these rules. Mm -hmm. First of all, freight rates. Speed limit, split speed limit, there's just so many things that go into problems with California. And, and that's the thing. You think it's expensive to get your goods into California now or out of California? When they pass this, you have no idea how expensive it's yeah. going to get for the average consumer to get their goods in and out of this state. Well, listen, it, it might work out. We'll see. But the good news is that like Europe just did, some of these things they say can then be rolled back in time. We'll see what happens. Louis Pugh, appreciate it. Have a good day and a good weekend, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. All right. Time now for a Friday RBI. Why don't we lighten it up just a little bit and get random but interesting about the college Final Four basketball tourneys? Because something very random, kind of cool, is going on this year. Ticket prices for the men's tournament finals in Houston have gone softer than a month-old avocado. Tickets that would normally be selling for hundreds or thousands of dollars can be had for $50 or less. In fact, the Houston Chronicle reporting there are even tickets to the final game Monday night listed for as little as 30 bucks. That's bonkers. A big reason is that the final four teams, while all great basketball stories, aren't attracting much in-person interest. The final game will either be UConn or Miami versus San Diego State or Florida Atlantic. Eh. But the women's final 
is getting much more attention and much more money, with most tickets to those games going for higher prices than the men's Final Four. Now, to be fair, the arena in Dallas has far fewer seats than where the men are playing in Houston. But let's be honest, the women's tourney has better matchups, with top-ranked South Carolina Gamecocks likely, hopefully, taking on top-ranked Virginia Tech in the final, or maybe some other golden purple team from Louisiana. We'll see. Either way, this is random but interesting, and a big go Hokies from me as the women Hokies play tonight in the Final Four. Maybe we'll have to go to Dallas this weekend. We'll see. Now, we, of course, had our own last call bracket challenge, and we already have a winner. Even before the Final Four this weekend, because we all stunk it up. All of our brackets were just absolutely horrible. But the guy who stunk it up slightly less than others is that guy. He's also the dude that's in my ear going, wrap it, wrap it. Taylor Craig has Florida Atlantic in the Final Four. Now, I want to be clear, despite that, you know, beautiful chrome dome, he is not some basketball savant. He also had Arizona, which lost to Princeton, Xavier and Gonzaga. His secret sauce is Taylor went to Florida Atlantic. He's an owl. Anyway, congratulations on taking our money. I think it's taxable. Lunch on you. All right, still ahead. Some fuzzy math over inflation. Why President Biden has some experts scratching their heads about a specific tweet. What do you, some people said we were wrong. Are we? We'll show it to you and you tell us if we're right or wrong. That's next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to a live last call. Here's a little sully side up good news on the final day of March. Thank God, worst month ever. Inflation went up a little slower than expected last month and with a smaller increase than in January. Good news. Now, the president released a statement to brag about it. And who wouldn't? And he said, quote, inflation is down by nearly 30 percent from this summer. Um, ostensibly because inflation went from 7% to 5%. So theoretically, that's a 30% difference. And that, shall we say, slightly fuzzy math caught our eye along with some others as well. With us tonight, Wall Street Journal reporter Nick Timros, who I saw your tweet first and I kind of figured out where he was going. And we're just having a little fun with math here. Taking the percent, and it's good inflation went down and we're just having a little bit of fun, right, Nick? But, but that's not really how we calculate inflation change, is it? No, it's not. I mean, we're, we're doing a 12-month change of a, of a price index, and that's what everybody sort of treats as the inflation rate. So it's a little goofy, I think, to take a change of the change. And, you know, that's what the president did in his statement. Is it the end of the world? No. But it's something I heard a couple of weeks ago from the White House, and I thought, oh, well, that, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do a percent change of a change. They won't do that again. And so and then they did it again. Tomorrow, in the statement today, I thought, OK, this is just it's it's kind of goofy. I think in the past, if you'd seen other presidents do it, people would have said, wait a minute. It just it's not great hygiene. It is true. You know, the inflation rate 
is down by about a third from where it was last summer. But it was up, you know, it's still up uh, a lot from where it was before we had this big inflation surge in 2021. So I get the White House wants to take credit for things getting less bad. Things are improving on the inflation front. But really, the story here, I think, is that they aren't improving maybe as much as people had thought they would be uh, a year ago yeah. when inflation did rise up to 7%. And I'm glad, listen, Nick, I got to say, like, I, I was glad to see you do that as well, because I've been watching the same thing. And I understand it's electioneering and it's politicking. I get it. But our job as financial journalists to be like, oh, these are numbers and they're not technically wrong, but they're highly misleading. And, and under the president's own math like that or whoever wrote the tweet, you wouldn't want that because when he took office, inflation was at like, what, one and a half percent. Now it's at, say, seven percent. That's a 400 percent jump in inflation if you use the same type of mathematical thinking. I don't think they'd want that. Yeah, it was clever political spin to make the point that, hey, actually, inflation's not as bad as it was. And of course, the White House wants to try to sell that story. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, it it's something that's going to confuse people. I mean, if you really tell people that inflation's down by 30 percent, they're going to say, oh, my God, this is great depression era deflation. And I don't think people are going to uh, go that crazy either. But it's more just a call for maybe uh, being honest with the spirit of what's happening here. Look, the inflation rate went from 7 percent to 5 percent. That's progress. That's a it's 2 percent, 2 percent drop. In it's a 2 percentage point drop is progress. Uh, but still, yeah. it's back to where it was in October, November 2021. And if you had told people, I think, in October, November 2021, inflation's at 5%, and it's going to stay at or above this level for the next year and a half, I think people would have said, wow, that is not, you know, people at the time were talking about transitory yeah. inflation. It's, it's a 2% headline drop. And listen, you're right. It could, it could cause people to go, my prices aren't going down 30%. Nick Timrose. Good stuff. Appreciate the honesty. Thank you very much. All right. Meantime, a developing story of high interest. Fox News suffering its biggest blow yet in its one and a half billion dollar defamation battle with Dominion voting systems. A Delaware judge has denied Fox's last ditch efforts to have the lawsuit thrown out, instead sending the case to trial, which is now set to begin April 17th. I'm sure that will get no attention whatsoever. Joining us now with a reaction is Semaphore co-founder Ben Smith and Yale University lecturer Joanne Lippmann. And Ben, we asked you your thoughts, and it was a little bit surprising, but then what you told us, then when I started to think about it, I thought, I think Ben's right. You say, and there's a lot of people that are finding a lot of joy in this tonight if they dislike Fox, but this could turn out to be bad for a lot of media people and organizations. Could it not? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is going to be bad for Fox, a hugely profitable company that has a lot of insurance, but it also puts a target on the back of, of you know, anyone in the speech business and will, you know, make a lot of lawyers, particularly if there's a huge verdict, excited about the prospect of collecting commissions on suing media companies. Yeah, Joanne, this is obviously going to be uh, spectacularly high profile for, for many different reasons. By the way, I don't know if you heard, but the former president was also indicted yesterday. Uh, what's your take on how this shakes out? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I Ben has a point, but I would say th there's two parts to this case, right? One is, did Fox hosts and guests make false and defamatory statements? And the second is, was there actual malice? So what the judge has ruled is, as a matter of fact, they did make these false statements. He said crystal clear in capital letters, crystal clear. 
But what he did say is that he did not find clear and convincing evidence of actual malice. And I think that is the main sticking point. We'll see. We saw lots of damning emails that a lot of people were gleeful over. And I always caution people, do not be gleeful over others' misfortune in this media business. But we saw a lot of that, but clearly it was not enough for the judge. Will it be enough for a jury is a good question. Another a really interesting question that I wonder is, is that the only evidence that the jury will see, or is there other evidence that came out in discovery uh, that we don't know about that would also add to that, um, to those findings? Well, the numbers, Ben, are so huge. Listen, Dominion is not a big company at all. I think just a couple 10 million a year in, in revenue, they're asking for a billion six. If they win a billion six, number one, it's gonna change Dominion and, and their lawyers forever, but does news, even News Corp, have that money? Do we have any indication if there is layers and layers of insurance and reinsurance? Because uh, that, that, that's a lot of money, even for News Corp. Companies tend to not to like to talk about how much insurance coverage they have, so we don't know. But I would, I, I would bet that, that they, have a lot, they have a lot of insurance and their insurers, lawyers are in the room on these decisions. It's also an immensely profitable company that can borrow money if it needs to. This isn't you know, it would be a huge blow to Fox. It is not existential to Fox. What it is a big problem for potentially is the Murdoch family who aren't identical to Fox. You know, Rupert Murdoch was on the stand in another very damaging case, you know, a decade ago in Britain, phone hacking, and gave this incredibly scripted, carefully prepared testimony. Is 93-year-old Rupert Murdoch, who seems pretty loose, going to be that disciplined? I don't know. And then the question of his son, Lachlan, who, you know, you would think the buck yeah. would stop with the CEO of a company. And, and, it, and, and so that could be a big problem for them. Joanne, we've obviously got this. We've got the Trump indictment. I mean, I would imagine this is going to be uh, a heck of a time in media. I mean, <laughs> it is a heck in of a many time ways, in many ways. Can I just point out, though, that as someone who has spent the majority of my adult life in newsrooms, the behavior that we are seeing, I just want viewers to understand that that's not normal newsroom behavior. I've, I've been at multiple news organizations. I've been the editor-in-chief of multiple news organizations. And the kind of behavior that we're seeing, the kinds of emails that have been coming out that are very disparaging, that are saying things like, this is ludicrous, it's mind-blowingly nuts, but we'll put it on the air anyway. The things that are really disparaging of the audience, you don't see that in a, in a mainstream news organization. I think that is uh, that is very well said, and I and I will honk on my way past New Brunswick and the Dow Jones headquarters building uh, tonight when I when I'm driving home. Joanne Lippman of East Brunswick High School. Thank you, Ben Smith. Appreciate that. All right. All right. Time now to kick off something very cool here on Last Call. And if you watch Worldwide Exchange, a show I used to do in the morning, you know what it is. But if not, here it is. We're bringing the weekly insider buys right to you live each week or almost every week, depending. We're gonna look at which companies had C-suite level execs buy the most of their own stock. Now, many consider this one of the best ways to gauge an executive's confidence level in their own company. The data comes, as always, with our thanks from Verity Data. And each week, we're gonna count you down from the fifth biggest buy of the week to the single biggest buy of the week. And this week is very interesting because it's really retail heavy. Here we go. All right, stock number five, Dollar Tree, a $248,900 buy by the new CFO. By the way, that person's first transaction since joining in October. Fourth biggest at Foot Locker, a $501,000 big buy by new CEO Mary Dillon. Also her 
first transaction at FL. Number three, United Natural Foods, a $1 million buy by the CEO. Now, he bought on extreme weakness. Shares of Umphy fell by nearly half after a massive earnings miss and withdrawn guidance. The CEO clearly trying to either shore up some market confidence or just felt like his stock was a bargain. Now to the top two. Number two, Stiefel Financial, ticker SF, a $1.12 million buy by the co-president is interesting because the CEO made a similar size buy just two weeks ago. So clearly the two guys at the top are trying to show confidence in their own company and a little bit of love to the stock. Stiefel's certainly a name to watch, but the biggest buy of the week was at Kohl's, KSS, a $2 million purchase by new CEO Thomas Kingsbury. Took over the troubled company about two months ago. He is the former CEO of Burlington Coat Factory, and this is also, dare we say, random but interesting. According to Verity Data, he never bought as an insider while CEO of Burlington and now a $2 million buy at Kohl's. That makes them a name to watch. There you go. Top five this week, Dollar Tree, Foot Locker, United Natural Foods, Stiefel, and Kohl's. We look forward to bringing you to this most Fridays. Remember, next Friday, there is no last call because the market is closed for good Friday. All right, still ahead. While Wall Street Journal reporters arrest in Russia may signal something far, far more dire about Vladimir Putin's collapsing economy. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Let's get now to a very scary and very serious story. The capture and arrest of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich in Russia. His arrest came just two days after he wrote a piece detailing how Russia's economy is coming undone. He was detained shortly after. Joining us now is Senior Associate Dean for Leadership Studies at the Yale School of Management, Jeff Sonnenfeld. We have Jeff on, not only because he's been very critical, obviously, of the Russian economy, but recently wrote a piece for Fortune where you call for Evan's Release. I mean, Jeff, listen, uh, it seems clear, unless it's just random timing, this guy writes an article critical of the economy and thus critical of Putin. And two days later, Putin's thugs pick him up. Uh, so true. So true, Brian. It is. Uh, I'm so sorry that we close out the week on, on such a troubling uh, downbeat story on your otherwise great show is this is really frightening. We know that since uh, Putin has been in power as president since 2000, 110 Russian journalists have disappeared with, you know, with weird, tragic, mysterious ends, not to mention since the outbreak of war. Thirty three oligarchs uh, fell off of, you know, windowsills and balconies of hotels. But to have this happen with a a U.S. journalist abducted like this, talk about, you know, shooting the messenger. This is awful. It is. And and let's let's pray for Evans. Uh, I do not know him. But again, let's pray for his speedy release. Obviously, Putin probably wants something. Hopefully we'll find out what that is. Maybe a prisoner swap. But Jeff, clearly another another attempt by Putin to cover up anything that's going on inside of his own company. He does not want the West and us to know anything about what's happening from his clear, likely failing war. No, that's exactly right, Brian, is uh, that Putin has uh, been largely losing the military war. He's certainly failing the diplomatic war, and uh, he's... he's. Uh, losing uh, uh, the economic war he's lost. This is 
is no by stretch of the imagination is Russia remotely an economic superpower now. Uh, as you know, uh, probably better than in almost anybody watching the show, is Russia's two-thirds of its exports were energy, and that is way down now. They're they're half of what they were this time last year uh, on energy exports. Almost, almost no gas, to your and my surprise, is that 90% of their gas stays in the ground. They, they can't sell it to anybody they don't have the network of the pipeline network to send into Europe uh, to uh, to Asia as as Putin was was bragging he was going to do to cut off Europe and Europe doesn't need any of his gas when it comes to oil he's losing money he's losing uh, up until last month he was losing like two dollars a barrel now he could be losing four or five dollars a barrel and pulling it out of the ground and getting that to India and China so he's in bad really bad shape metals we can get that anywhere in the world now thanks to Putin the rest of the world's uh, development has become far more efficient especially in Africa and South South America and when it comes to you know agriculture we've had bumper crops everywhere in the world except uh, much of drought uh, uh, yeah. in Africa and they held up pretty well at the beginning you and I would go back and forth selling oil now they had the ship to ship transfer now they have the price caps the longer this goes on, to your point, Jeff, is, is there a risk that, you know, and there will be a day, hopefully very soon, where Putin is gone one way or the other. Do they risk turning that into sort of a just a bigger Venezuela in terms of the fact if you don't have Western investment, oil, gas infrastructure requires billions of dollars. It ultimately just rots if you don't take care of it. Yeah, you know, that's that is a big problem is, again, Brian, and not to drag you back into your area of expertise, but as you know, is uh, Russia is the least efficient producer in OPEC plus. It costs the Saudis $22 a barrel to extract it out of the ground. It costs Russia $45, $46, and it's only selling for $49 a barrel. And it costs them another $10 or $12 a barrel to get that to India or China. So they're losing a ton of money. This is this is a big problem for them. And what we see, what does this country have? There's no finished goods coming out of this country. Nobody watching this show buys a, a Lotto or a Skoda car. Nobody will meet, has any finished goods out of Russia. All they have is raw materials, like an old exploited colony in the old mercantile system. That's all they are, is, and they're becoming more and more of a vassal state uh, to China. Yeah. The only way they can win is the information war, and that's what's troubling, and that's what this Wall Street Journal reporter was bringing out, is challenging the false news from the IMF. The IMF, sadly, had certified... Putin's propaganda because they didn't have the facts. As uh, to be a member of the IMF, there 166 nations have to contribute about 40 national income statistics. Guess what Putin did? He's concealed that information. Cut it off. Yeah. Don't know. Can't criticize it if it's cut off. Jeff, appreciate you staying late, my friend. Thank you very much, Jeff Sonnefeld. All right, coming up, one of the most remarkable wonders of the world unveiled on this day 134 years ago. Do you know what it is? Don't look at your phone. The answer after the break. Welcome back. Let's wrap it up. Do you know what happened 130, years ago today? One of the most recognizable monuments in the world open to the public. Let's take you back in time to March 31st, 1889. La Tour Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower, opened as the entrance for the World's Fair in Paris. Incredibly, the iron structure you may not have known this was meant to only be up for 20 years. It's going to be demolished. It's supposed to be temporary. But its value as an antenna for radio transmission saved it at nearly 1,000 feet tall. The Eiffel Tower was the largest man-made structure in the world for 40 years. It was eventually surpassed by the great Chrysler Building in New York City. While some Parisians say it is an eyesore still, I haven't met any, the Eiffel Tower remains one of the most popular tourist attractions in the world, more than 7 million a year. 
How about that? Save vrai. Passez un bon week-end. Et we'll see you on Monday. Lundi. Au revoir. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.